this is just something I want to share personally from my heart. Uh, there's something that happens when people of faith assemble together. And the only way I can describe it is it's a mystery. I don't know how to explain it other than it's the Holy Spirit's work. Um, we don't have a lot here this morning, but that's totally irrelevant to what God does. And every time I, I come and worship with my church family, I get a little bit convicted, but I also get energized, and I, and I, I, I purpose in my heart to have a better week next week because I'm here with y'all. And I'm thinking about this afternoon, how I just want to get alone with the Lord because I've come and met with you and how important this is. The writer of Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching. So I'm just, I'm th very thankful for our fellowship. I'm thankful for each one of you and just um, the encouragement that I receive from greeting people, hugging people, shaking hands. Um, thank you. So our passage this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Philippians 1, 12 through 18. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some others also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add afflictions to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Now in some Greek manuscripts, those two verses are inverted. And it's, it's easy to understand if you look at the Greek because they're, it's a chiasm is what they call it where you're comparing unlike things with each other. And so the copyist um, and I'm flipped in some of the manuscripts, uh, but they're word for word just the same. So if you're reading from a, other than the New King James or the King James, which follows a different manuscript family, um, the, the, there's little to no difference. Um, but I just wanted to point that out. If, if you're reading with me and, and it, it seemed like those verses were inverted, that's because there's a, a discrepancy in some of the manuscripts. But the words are exactly the same, and it's just the copyist eyes, you know, that that's happens when you copy, copy uh, ancient documents. Um, but the words are all preserved for us. This, the, the verses are inverted. Verse um, 18, what then? Here's Paul's conclusion to all of this. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, 
Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Father, God, as Caleb asked people about their week, uh, many hands went up and just said they had some rough circumstances this week. Um, Lord, that's nothing new for any of us. It was nothing new for the Apostle Paul and the Philippians who were deeply concerned about their pastor, the missionary that they had sent out, the one that they fellowshiped with. They'd heard of the things that were happening to him, and he wanted to reassure them that God's in control, that God is sovereign, that God takes everything that faces us, and he uses it for the furtherance of his gospel, and he uses it to perfect us, to make us more like his son. And so, Father, our greatest joy isn't found in our circumstances. Our greatest joy is in the fact that our lives are centered and anchored in the gospel message. And so, God, these ancient words that we just sang about, God, they are very applicable today. And so I pray that, God, you'll open our hearts. Holy Spirit would instruct us, guide us, and take these ancient truths, God, and and write them on our hearts and help us to live them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. I wanted to just share with you before I get into the text um, a real-life story that really lived out this passage of Scripture. Uh, it was something that I remember because it was radical. I was 29 years old, and we had a missionary come from an organization called the Association of Baptists for World Evangelization. And he came and he reported to our church, but he also wanted to take collection for Bibles because Eastern Europe was exploding in revival. You, could, you couldn't take enough Bibles to St. Peter's Square. They, thousands of them, and they would be emptied within 10 minutes. And people would go away in tears, crying. He showed our church this video, and we took up offerings to send more Bibles to the Eastern Bloc countries. But where, where did it start? It started with a very unassuming man in the country of Romania. Uh, his name, I don't know if I can pronounce it. Um, Sister Adriana was helping me today with some of these names. Uh, Lashlo Tox was his name. And was that okay, Elise? <laughs> okay. And Shishevsku? Ciao. Say it again. Thank you. We got three Romanians here, so that's, that's very helpful. But he had the most oppressive communist regime in all of Eastern Europe at that time. But Pastor Tokes um, was unintimidated by the things that he was threatened with. Just to get into the church building, you would have to kind of walk through a gauntlet of secret police. And the secret police were all over in the congregation, too. So you didn't know who you were talking to. You didn't know who you could trust. If you would be informed on, or if, you were, if your food stamps, your fuel, your bread, everything could be taken away from you instantly if they thought you were a threat to the communist government. And 
In fact, Pastor Tokes had all those things stripped from him. He had no way of buying food. He had no way of buying petrol for his vehicles. Couldn't pay his electric bills. But that church found about his needs, and there was true fellowship, true sharing. But the communists, and not only the communists, but there was a state church that was sanctioned by the government. And in order to be a part of the state church, you had to agree to certain things. And one of them is that you would not proselytize, that you would not try to convert people to faith in Jesus Christ. And Pastor Tokes refused to be a part of the organized state church. You were not allowed to, to teach that you could find Christ alone as your source. The government wanted to be the source. He, the government wanted to be the savior of the people. But uh, Tokes uh, continued to, to preach, and the church continued to grow, even though uh, it was, it, it was a, a great cost to go to that church. Um, but they decided that they were going to have the pastor assassinated, and they were going to make it look like thieves. So the secret police came into his home late one night with ski masks on and, and knives and clubs, and nearly beat him to death, but there were guests that were going to come over that night, late that night for prayer. And when they came to the door, the secret police fled and left him there in a pool of blood, and he was able to survive. But as a result of that beating, the church began to grow more and more because the congregation watched what happened to their pastor and they became confident, they became bold, just as Paul wrote here. This is how relevant these words are. And so they decided, if we kill him, we're going to make a martyr out of him. So they decided one night that they would come to his home and take him off into exile, take him to some unknown village, who knows where. But they issued him letters of eviction. And... They were going to shut his house down, shut his power off, shut the energy to the home. So he had no choice. So the next Sunday, he announced it to his church what was going to happen. He says, but I am not going to go. He says, I will flee. I'll find some other place to live, but I will not give in. I have no fear because my life is Christ and to die is gain. The very next paragraph that we're going to read out of Philippians well, the church found out what night it was that the secret police were going to be there. And so they decided to gather around the home, and they made literally a human shield around that man's house. And their home was right across from the train station. And a Baptist pastor got out of that train that night, and he saw the assembly in front of this home, and he walked over, and he says, what is going on? And they told him that the secret police were coming to arrest this pastor and to take him to exile. So he immediately went to a phone booth and called some of his church congregation. And one of the men that he called gathered candles, as many candles as he could find. And they all stood there in the dark that night with a lit candle praying for the pastor, praying for the gospel, praying for freedom 
to run through the country of Romania. There were so many people that the police didn't know what to do. So finally, out of frustration, they drove their van right through the crowd, part of the crowd, and went into the home, and they abducted the pastor. So by this time, the crowd had grown to thousands. Phone call after phone call, Christian underground churches from everywhere filling this, this area. And they decided to march to Timisoara, the square. And when they got there, they were met by a strong military force, tanks, tear gas, you, you name it. Uh, and they, they refused to leave. They continued to pray. They continued to ask God's intervention. And then the military was ordered to fire on unarmed civilians. And person after person dropped to the ground as the bullets were flying. Uh, estimated over 127 people were, were massacred that night. One man's leg was completely blown off. The man who brought the candles uh, went home without a leg. But this went on for a few, about 15 to 20 minutes, and then something unique, something unheard of happened, and the military stopped firing, and they turned on Sushescu's secret police. And within a week, that communist regime was toppled. And as a result, Christianity, the, the underground church of Romania, no longer needed to fear. They engaged in, in evangelism openly. They were doing it already. But when people who were observing this, especially the younger generation, who'd had God stripped from them from the time that they entered school, indoctrinated into atheism, and they felt hopeless, they felt life was meaningless, and there was no purpose, it exploded. And that revival in Romania then went to the other Eastern Bloc countries. And, and those of us who are old enough, to, we remember the fall of the Soviet Union. And we watched it on TV, but what they never told you is that it was started by Christians in the country of Romania who had a vibrant faith. And God tells us that no matter what circumstances happen in our life, what you might be facing this week, what you might be going through, God does and will use all of our obstacles that we face as opportunities to advance his kingdom. And those people who seem to be our enemies, God can actually use them for an advertisement for the gospel. And so that's really what Paul was saying here. And this passage starts out, it, you, can, you can see the transition right here. Paul goes through his normal introduction, and he follows the, the letters that, that would have been written in his time, one with a, with a prologue announcing who he is, and he announces himself as a slave, and he puts himself with Timothy as a complete equal. He's writing to the saints, all 
the saints. Every believer, because that entire church fellowship with him in giving and receiving. So he thanks God. He goes through the thanksgiving. And then he gives his prayer that we talked about last week, how he prayed that their love would abound more and more, and in two areas, knowledge and discernment, so that they could test, so they could try the things that are excellent and make the best decisions so that their lives would be sincere, blameless until the day of Christ. And now he gets into the real body of the letter. And you can see the sharp transition in verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren. The word brethren is in a case in the original language that you use to address somebody that is extremely close to you. It could be translated, I want you to know, oh, my family, my family, my brothers. So what was Paul, why was, he, why was he addressing this right from the start, the very first thing that he addresses in his letter? Because these people were so close to the Apostle Paul. They knew what was happening in his life, and he wanted to relieve their fears. There was a man named Epaphroditus who was a member of this church, and he was currying letters and money and support to Paul while he was in prison, but then he would return back and he would share with the church what was happening to Paul, that he is in chains. And so they were wondering, has this hindered the spread of the gospel? Paul, has this imprisonment affected your ministry in any way? And so he says, oh, brothers... My close friends, I want you to know. And I want us to know and realize today that God takes our obstacles and he turns those into opportunities. You can you think back in your own life where things are going out of control, or things that you just say, God, why is this happening? And as a result of it, you get to share your faith in Christ over and over again. It's happened in my life, and I know it's happened in yours. Because our joy is not based on our temporal circumstances. If our joy was based on that, our lives would be a literal roller coaster. I mean... Job said it. We're born for affliction. When Paul went to the churches, he says, Through many trials you must enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. He says, I want you to remember that Jesus Christ, according to the seed of David, has been preached. And this is the gospel I preach to you, for which I suffer tribulation as an evildoer, even to the point of bonds. Then he says this, but the word of God is not bound. God's word is not bound by the things that happen to you and I in our lives. These are opportunities. And Paul says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The word furtherance is a word that was used for an explorer. And he was just plowing through the woods, 
making a new trail. It was also used in military terms when an army was taking new territory and they were, again, forging pathways through uncharted territory. And what was one place that Paul wanted to get to, that he was so passionate to get to? Exactly. Paul wanted to go to the city of Rome. Where else could Paul change an entire empire but the city of Rome itself? So Paul says, I want you to know the things that have happened to me have happened to the furtherance of the gospel. Now, how did the Philippians know that something adverse was going to happen to Paul? Well, Paul, on his third missionary journey, backtracked through all the churches that he had visited. And we're told in the book of Acts, in chapter 20, that in every city that Paul went to, that when he got to Jerusalem, that chains and afflictions abided him or awaited him. And they tried everything in their power to dissuade Paul from going back to Jerusalem. And I love what Paul said. Paul said, I don't count my life dear unto myself. His joy wasn't about him. And our joy is not about us. It's not how comfortable we are. It's not about having all of our bills taken care of. It's not our retirement. Our joy is centered in Christ alone. He says, I want to finish my course with joy. In one place, Abacus came up to him and grabbed his belt and took it off and wrapped up his hands. He says, the man who wears this belt, he is going to be bound in Jerusalem. And they pleaded with Paul. Paul said, I am not only ready to go to Jerusalem, I'm ready to die in Jerusalem. And when they couldn't persuade him to change his mind, they ceased saying and said, the will of God be done. So sometimes it's God's very will. It's his plan for your life that you are in the middle of circumstances that you really don't enjoy. In fact, you wish... If anything else, it could be just the opposite. I'm sure that this is not what Paul had planned for himself. We plan our steps, but the Lord directs our path. Now, that's a bit of a mystery, too. God wants us to be responsible. He wants us to think. He, makes, he expects us to make good decisions and wise choices. But at the end of the day... It is God who is directing us. It is God who is opening the doors. And we can rest in that. Paul doesn't draw attention to his misfortunes. Rather, the progress of the gospel. Obstacles create opportunities. They are no hindrance. So what can we expect God to do? You and I can expect God to do the unexpected. There's two things that God did here that was just totally unexpected. Those who never would have heard the gospel got to hear. And those who never would have preached are now bold enough to preach. 
the ones that you didn't expect, the most shy, the quietest person in the church, he turned into a bold evangelist because he says, if Brother Paul can do this, I can do it too. And you think about the people who heard the gospel because of what happened to Paul when he went back to Jerusalem. He went into the temple and he was arrested. A riot breaks out and they are beating Paul literally to death. A Roman soldier comes in and pulls Paul out of the crowd. And he thinks, this guy's an Egyptian. He's, I don't know who he is. He's, he's a terrorist. And these Jews are, are, are going to get rid of him. And Paul starts to speak to him in Greek. He says, you can speak Greek? He says, yeah, not only that, I'm a Roman citizen. Because they were going to beat Paul to find out what, was, what the turmoil was. And he says, let me speak to them. So Paul gets to the steps as they're taking him into the garrison. And he begins to speak in the Hebrew language, and the whole crowd goes silent. And that mob that was beating Paul, now he gets to share the gospel with them. But he said one word that turned it back into a riot. The word Gentiles. And they just started all over again. So the trial is going to be set for the next day. Forty men sign themselves up to a conspiracy to kill Paul. They hear about it, and so what does Paul get? He gets a 470-man escort down to Caesarea. And every one of those soldiers know why they're wanting to kill Paul. Because of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason. Because he believed in the resurrection and the power for Christ to change lives. 470 soldiers get to hear about Christ. He gets to Caesarea. And who hears his trial but the governor named Felix. And he is married to a woman called Drusilla, and she is a Jewish. And they know these stories about the Messiah. And she informs Felix. And Felix calls him often because he wants to hear the gospel. And when Paul reasoned with Felix about righteousness, about self-control, and the judgment to come, Luke tells us that he trembled. He's got this prisoner. I don't know what to do with him. There is no law that this man broke. The only reason he's in prison is because he believes the things that the Jews themselves agree with, that there would be a resurrection, that there would be a Messiah, that he would be the Savior and deliverer of the world. How can I arrest this guy? So he holds him there until another governor comes. His name was Festus. Festus didn't know what to do with Paul either, but he hears about King Agrippa and his, I don't know if we call her his wife. Her name was Bernice, but it was actually his sister. And it was a well-known scandal in the city of Rome. But she was a Jew Herod is an Edomite, so he knows the stories. And Paul gets to give again the gospel to King Herod and to Bernice. And he nearly persuades King Agrippa to become a Christian. So now what are they going to do with this guy? He says, you, we're going to send you back to Jerusalem. He says, no, nope, I'm not going back there. I stand before Caesar's judgment, and that's where I need to be judged. 
I'm just trying to show you how God was using all the things that happened to Paul for the furtherance of the gospel. Well, he gets on a ship with 276 people. And that ship is in the midst of a storm called Euroclidon. It's so bad that they're throwing wheat, they're throwing their tackle, throwing everything overboard. And the apostle Paul is praying for the life of everyone on that ship. So the ship's going to be broken to pieces. And the centurion says, let us kill the prisoners. We don't want any to escape. They escape, it's our life or theirs, so let's kill them. But Paul, next to the centurion, is telling him about Jesus on that entire voyage. He's telling him, you don't need to be afraid. We're going to lose the ship, but everyone's life is going to be saved. I mean, you, Paul is having such an impact. They're getting in the lifeboats. And Paul says, if you don't stay in the ship, you're going to die. You know what they did? They cut the ropes and let the boats fall into the sea. And then Paul says, you haven't eaten for two weeks. Bring in some food. In front of the entire ship, Paul bows his head. And he prays to the one true God. And people are starting to listen to him. Because he told them before they ever left on this voyage, we're not going to make it. And now he's got a captivated audience. So they land on the island of Malta. It's cold. It's raining. It's, it's, it's in the wintertime now. And, and so they're, they're throwing bundles of sticks on the fire. Paul grabs a bundle of sticks. The heat wakes up a snake, <laughs> yeah. latches on to Paul's arm. Well, these are a bunch of pagans on this island. So they start to surmise, this guy escaped the sea, but the gods, they got him. This guy's a criminal. He's a murderer, and fate has found him. Well, they keep watching. What's going to happen to this guy? He's going to swell up, surely. He's going to fall over dead. Now they change their mind. He's a god. And Paul then preaches the gospel to the island of Malta. There was a man on that island named Publius, his father. He, he was the magistrate of the entire island, another Roman magistrate. And his father was sick of a fever. And Paul goes and lays hands on him and he heals him. And they start bringing all the sick people from the island of Malta. And the gospel is preached. And Paul says, I want you to know, my brothers, the things that have happened to me have happened to the furtherance of the gospel. I don't like using personal illustrations, but those are the only ones I really know very well. So you have to excuse me. But in 1988, I had the, the privilege of, of, of running in a very important track meet. It was in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I had a, a friend come to me. It was a pastor friend, a seminary teacher. And he says, how can I pray for you when you go to this track meet? And I said, I want you to pray Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. That God would open a door for the word. That I can make it known the mystery of Jesus Christ to people. And so, I mean, I'm trying every way. I get there, and I've got a taxi driver coming, and I'm thinking, how can I get the gospel to him? You know, and, and there's a, a training table, I'm, and I'm leaving tracks out, and I'm thinking, how? And I'm trying to do this in my own strength. The most important day of that meet 
I ruptured my Achilles tendon. And I'm thinking, God, this wasn't what I was my planning. I, I was planning to do really well at this meet. And people asked me, and I was going to give all the praise to Jesus. <laughs> I got back to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and a principal called me of a public high school, Howard High School. It's probably one of the biggest inner city schools in Chattanooga. He says, I want you to come, and I want you to address our student body. I got to talk to a thousand high school students and tell them about my Savior, that Jesus Christ is the only race in life that is really worth running. I got called by three more high schools in the city of Chattanooga to come and tell my testimony. The first thing I would tell them, you know, I'm in the South. You know, that, that, that's a bonus right there. So I, and usually the principal was a Christian. And I, I would tell him, if you're going to have me speak, there can't be any holds or any restrictions. I'm going to tell you and I'm going to tell your students how I found hope in my discouragement and it's found in Jesus Christ. That's why we want you to come, they would tell me. I never imagined that God was going to turn that out for the furtherance of the gospel. Think about what's happening to you. I think of Barb. <laughs> Barb, how many mechanics are you going to get to witness to this week? <laughs> she, she's having all kinds of car trouble. But you know what? Those are opportunities to tell people about Christ, whatever happens to us. And we can expect God to do the unexpected. Those who were timid became emboldened. In fact, it says the majority of them were now confident because of what happened to the Apostle Paul. Let me just read it for us again. And most of the brethren in the Lord, notice it's not all of them, and what, what happened to them? Having become confident. And what was the means? What was the thing that did it? By my chains. And the result is they are bold to speak ha lagos. The message about Jesus Christ. So they were preaching the gospel. Now, Paul's chains gave greater boldness, but you think about what Jesus told us and how we can have greater boldness because of what Jesus said before he sent the 12 off. He says, you're going to find yourself up against opposition. But he said this in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 26. He says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed. One day it's all going to be exposed, isn't it? And we don't have to have any fear. There is nothing hidden that will not be made known in the light. So what I tell you in the dark, speak it in the light. What you hear whispered in the ear, I want you to proclaim it on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground without your father. 
The second point that I want to make this morning is that the proclamation of Christ is really the bottom line for our joy. That's really what matters in life. That is the bottom line. That's what it's all about. So verses 15 through 18. Notice it starts out with the word some, and it's used twice in this verse. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. Now that some has to have an antecedent noun that it's referring to, and it's referring to my brothers in verse 14, and some of my brothers. So these aren't heretics. These aren't Judaizers. These aren't opponents, but these are people within, the, within Paul's Christian camp. And even they had impure motives. And there's nothing, nothing more damaging, nothing more hurtful to a Christian when your own family tries to hurt you. You know, Jesus said it, my, my familiar friends, he said, if it was an enemy, I could take it. And Paul says, even some of my brethren have got ill will. But you know what Paul learned and realized, and you and I need to realize it just as much, because those things will rob our joy. They will, if we let them. But it's not about us at the end of the day. It's about Christ. And that's what Paul remembered. So some of them, out of the wrong motives. So what do we do when that happens to us? We lay aside our personal entrance, our interests. Some general observations that I want to make here, three of them. Both groups refer to who Paul mentioned in verse 14. I showed you that. It's the pronoun referring back to his brethren. So they are preaching Christ. That's important. This affirmed by three verbs. In verse 14, it says to speak. In verse 15, it says they preach. And then in verse 18, whether pretense or, Christ, or truth, Christ is preached. So those three verbs tell us that these people were proclaiming Jesus. They weren't proclaiming a false message. It was the Lagos. It was the message about Christ. And those are things that you and I can rejoice in. We can have joy regardless of other people's motives. Get ourselves out of the way. Wrong motives are envy, strife, selfish ambitions, and not sincerely. Now, these are two words. There's couplets. The first two words are words of relationship. So these were people who knew Paul. They could really hurt him and, and, and affect him the, mo the deepest. The second two words are words for a partisan spirit. And sadly, reality, Christians can act just like the world. And we can be hurt just as deeply, more deeply, by our own Christian family. But if Christ is moving forward, we can rejoice in that. Now, why does Paul mention this in his letter now? That there are some that are filled with strife, some filled with envy, some out of selfish ambition, the wrong motives. Paul, I think, is being very, very subtle here. He's introducing this because he's putting a finger on a problem in the church at Philippi. 
And that's not just a problem at the church of Philippi. That's a problem in every Christian fellowship. And North Valley Bible Church is not exempt. We will be tempted to have that party spirit, to talk about somebody else, to make ourselves look better. And Paul says that is a malevolent attitude. It's infectious. And, and it kills a church ministry. And so Paul is, and he's telling us how to, to, how, to, how to handle it. First of all, we don't take it personal. And we give it to the Lord and we rejoice in spite of it. And so Paul is introducing this. If you get over to chapter 2, and you can see the same words. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded in the same love, being of one accord and one mind. And here it is. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. So the church had this tendency as well. And Paul's saying, it's going to happen to me, and I know it's going to happen to you, and we know it can happen right here at our own church. If you flip over to chapter 4, we can see it again. Two ladies that weren't getting along very well. I implore Eodia and I implore Synthache to be of one mind in the Lord. So Paul was sort of subtly addressing something right now, right up front in the, as he transitions this letter. Others were preaching out of goodwill and love. This is also probably directed toward the Apostle Paul, this goodwill and love. And the reason, why, what was the reason for them preaching out of goodwill and out of love? Let's look at the text. Verse 17, if you've got a King James or New King James, it might be the other way around if, it's, if you've got a different translation. But the verse says this, but the latter out of love. And here's why. What, was it, what is it that motivated them? They knew that Paul was appointed for the defense of the gospel. When Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Ananias says, I, I don't want to go down to that guy's house. I've heard all about him. He says, go because he is a chosen vessel. He is elected to a divine service in my kingdom. And he's going to bear my king, bear my name before Gentiles and before kings and before the country of Israel. And I'm going to show Paul what great things he's going to suffer for my name's sake. They knew that Paul had been appointed to this. Now, why is he addressing this right now? Because the Philippians were going to go through the exact same thing, and he's preparing them to think biblically. He's preparing them to think the way God thinks. Because you get down to the end of this chapter, and he says, I don't want you to be terrified by your adversaries. Verse 28, that's proof of their perdition, but a view of your salvation, that from God. And look at verse 29, for to you it has been granted. Now the word granted, if you do a word study of this, it means to be given the privilege to do something, the responsibility, the right to do something. 
And so Paul says to them, don't be terrified by your adversaries because God has given you the privilege, but also the responsibility. The privilege is to believe in his name, and the responsibility is to suffer for his sake. So it's not necessary for us to know all the reasons why God is doing things in our life, because our joy is independent from the obstacles and the circumstances that we face. Aren't you glad? Brendan, aren't you glad that your joy is not wrapped up in a Honda S2K? <laughs> that thing has blown more things than I can count. Cost more money and he called me yesterday. I should have told him I was going to use him as an illustration. <laughs> and anytime he calls me and it's the car, I'm going, oh, no. But blew the axle yesterday or a couple days ago. Just spent all of his money putting brand new tires on it. And boom, the axle goes out. And I'm wondering, how are you doing, Brendan? I mean, if it ain't been one thing, it's another. And he says, you know what? It doesn't bother me. And I think he's finally, you know, he's learned that that thing is just four wheels and a bucket of bolts rolling down the road. And one day it is going to be in a dumpster and mashed up and melted down. But this, this is eternal. And so our joy is unrelated to circumstances. It's unrelated to the way people treat us. We rejoice in this, that Christ is the center of our lives and that his word is moving forward. Joy is based not on what others think of us, but our approval before Christ alone. The who is not important, but the fact that God's message is being accomplished in other people's lives. When I first got into ministry, I used to be jealous and envious of churches that were growing. I remember I came to Ogden, Utah, and I'd been here for six years, and we had a little church downtown called Grace Baptist Church, and we started with about eight people, and after six years, we'd grown to six. <laughs> 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 and I found about a pastor who moved from Salt Lake and in their first year they had over 200 a church called Gospel Grace it was hard for me to rejoice it really was shame, shame on me but that's human, that's the way we are but we should rejoice that Christ is growing and the gospel is progressing because it's not about us. It's not about our circumstances. Our joy is found in Jesus and that the word of God is making progress. And that's what Paul wanted us to anchor our lives on today. Let's pause in prayer. Father, thank you so much that you have all things in control and even the things that we don't understand, you are fully aware. And either you determine it, God, 
or you purposely allow it and you could intervene, but you choose not to. You could have stopped that beating in the city of Philippi, but you knew that Paul had a date with a Philippian jailer who was going to trust Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And Paul had a choice to make when he was laying there in prison. He could grumble and he could murmur, or he could be a shining light in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. God, I pray that you give us the impetus from the Holy Spirit to do the latter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.